Hello and welcome to another episode of Chai with the Pre-Med Guys, where my friend Wally Prezada and myself, Saeed Khan, share with you the stories of experienced medical students and medical professionals. Our hope is that through these stories, you might be able to find the answers to questions or challenges you have been facing in your pursuit to medicine. On today's episode, we are proud to host a very special guest from Stony Brook Medicine. Joining us today in our Chai time is orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Matthew Burchuk. Dr. Burchuk attended Case Western Reserve Medical School in the 80s. Following his residency in orthopedics, he returned to Case to complete a fellowship in spine surgery. After years working in Alabama and then Baylor University in Dallas, he is now the chief of spine and scoliosis services in Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Stony Brook Medicine. So Dr. Verchuk, a very warm welcome to Chat with the Pre-Med Guys. And uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Although it's not much of a warm welcome since it's freezing outside. It is absolutely <laughs> freezing. It is a very unprecedented snowy, snowy day. I believe we almost got, what, about one and a half foot, two, two feet? It, is that right? Okay. okay. It was just a little bit when I came to work this morning. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, been, it's been crazy over here. It's uh, we're just being bogged down with snow. This is very unprecedented. I'm from upstate, but this is unprecedented for Stony Brook. I haven't seen this much snow in Long Island in a while. Yeah, well, I'm glad it's here. I yeah. like the snow and I like the cold. Absolutely. At least yeah. for a few days. At least just for a few days. At least I might get tired days. of it after a while. That's true. That's true. Well, Dr. Burchuk, um, the first question we usually ask our guests is why they decided to like embark on this long, long journey to medicine. However, now that you're at a point where you're basically decades into being a practicing physician, you've Got a lot of years under your belt. We'd like to ask not only what made you want to become a physician, but also how you've held on to that why, why medicine throughout the years. I imagine, I imagine it must uh, take a great deal of resilience to hold on to the visual of your image for persisting for so long. So I just wanted to know, so what has driven you all these years? How has your why and your reason for wanting to be a doctor shaped your life and career? And what made you choose orthopedics? Well, first of all, I didn't always want to be a doctor. In fact, when I was in high school, I remember my dad asked me what I thought I wanted to do for a living. And I told him I didn't really know, but I just wanted to play sports on the weekends. So he told me that, well, then you should be a dentist. So I actually went to college in a pre-professional uh, scholars program in dentistry at Case Western, which mm -hmm. is in Cleveland, Ohio. And they had a program there where you would do college and undergrad. I mean, you do college and grad school in six years. So mm -hmm. they took a few people each year into that program. And I uh, went there for that reason. And um, my brother, who was a few years ahead of me, was uh, starting med school at Case also. And as I was going through my classes, um, I just uh, sort of became more interested in the, in the medicine aspect of things. And so I switched and uh, wound up sort of doing the medicine track instead. So that's what got me into it in the first place. Um, and I really enjoyed med school at Case Western. They had a little bit of a different curriculum and they sort of uh, uh, were looking for a little bit different kind of student, maybe one who'd been out for a couple of years, not necessarily straight out of college. And so um, I just felt a good chemistry with the place. and. I uh, had a really good experience there in med school and then wound up sticking around 
uh, after being in Chicago for a little while, I finished my residency and did my spine fellowship there too and had a good experience there. And, you know, really, you know, the, the pathway to medicine, you go from, you know, most people work fairly hard in high school, you work hard in college, you work hard in med school, you work hard in fellowship, in, in residency. It's sort of a non, it's a, uh, it just keeps going. I guess after a while, you just kind of inertia, just keeps have, having to go in that direction. But as, as you go through it, though, you wind up gaining more knowledge and expertise and, and skills. And that should have always sort of kept me going to the next level. And, um, you know, I've just always enjoyed it. I always like doing uh, complicated cases. So I think that's one of the reasons to be at a, uh, a big medical center as opposed to a community hospital. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, Dr. Burchuk, I think one of the things you said that really stuck out to me was well, just your undergrad journey where, you know, you started out um, just wanting to do sports on the weekends that led to dentistry and then eventually led to medicine. And you know, people are always in such a rush, whether it's to you know finish your degree a year early or it's to get into med school right away. Um, but, you know, sometimes, you know, taking your time can can you know how they say uh, there are some sites you only see when you take the detour. Right. But um, it just goes to show how foundational, how fundamental these early on experiences can be. So I wanted to ask you, you know, reflecting back, what's one experience or undertaking from your undergrad years, or maybe right before your medical school years, that's made you a better physician now? And, you know, what advice would you give to your undergraduate self to be better prepared for the long journey ahead to medicine? Well, I would say that a couple of things, you know, first of all, just always kind of working hard and um, having, it's hard, it's hard to have a really great balance in your life when you're an undergrad, because as you know, I mean, medical school is competitive and you need to get good grades. And so it's hard to have a totally balanced lifestyle, but I still always felt like it was really important to stay physically healthy while I was in, in college. And so I, um, I didn't play on any of the college teams, but I always, you know, played intramural basketball and, and always, um, you know, played tennis and went running and, and did things to keep me um, physically strong, because I think that's really important. And, um, and then I also like doing some of the extracurricular things. When I was in college, I was president of my uh, college class for several years. So that got me involved with other things on campus. And, and then I just had some good friends and, you know, just all in all, just kind of kept you going. Absolutely. I think uh, one thing I've heard is that, you know, speaking on balancing life and like, you know, everyone says you need to have like a well-rounded balanced life, but a lot of people, one way to go about it is that, you know, your life doesn't need to be balanced or well-rounded at all times. Rather, maybe it should be well-rounded or balanced in its, in its aggregate. So, um, so yeah, I think that's like a great, uh, yeah. I mean, there'll be many times when your life is totally imbalanced. I mean, you know, we have residents here and, you know, residency was a long time ago for me too, but these, these residents are working all the time. And, um, I don't think that they would consider their lives to be very balanced now, but, you know, it's a sacrifice that they're, uh, 
willing to make. And, um, you know, I think it'll be worth it and for them in the long run, like it was for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Dr. Birchak, you were talking about your time in medical school and, you know, I can't help but think back to all the physicians that Said and I have, have had the pleasure of talking to. And all their stories show just how influential and how much of a growing experience medical school is for them. Um, and, you know, even you talk about, you know, Case Western so fondly, your time in medical school fondly. And with that in mind, I wanted to ask you to share a bit of your, a bit more of your medical school uh, experience with us, you know, um, as, you know, being one of our few guests that's a fully specialized physician, you're in a unique position where you can tell us how your experiences in med school have affected the trajectory of your entire career. So tell us, Dr. Bergstrack, like how do you look back at your four years of medical school now? Well, first of all, just to put it in perspective, that was between 1980 and 1984. So you're talking about something that's almost 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if I can remember every little, every little bit of it, but um, I just, um, you know, I like the way our curriculum was, was organized and, um, really, the, the, in, in a lot of ways, medical school is a lot easier than college, at least it was for me, because when you're in college, you were really trying to get into medical school. Once you get into medical school, you know, you're pretty much, it would be very unusual for somebody not to complete the med school part. So, you know, I felt that, that I was a lot more relaxed then. There wasn't as much pressure. And as far as knowing a particular area that I wanted to go into, you know, in the first two years, it's mostly classroom. And then in your third year, you do general rotations. And then the fourth year is fairly elective. And um, for me, I sort of always felt like I would go into one of the surgical fields. And um, I was actually thinking about general surgery uh, initially, but then I did a couple of rotations and I found like I sort of related to the orthopedic crowd better. And so uh, that sort of made me want to do that. I remember one summer between third and fourth year, I played on a baseball team and just about everybody on the team was going into orthopedics. So I took that as a, as a, as a sign. <laughs> so um, well, and it worked out. That that's that seems that seems like a very enjoyable time, honestly. Like spending spending your time off that you have in med school, like playing a sport or doing something that you love. It's I feel like that's very important. And honestly, yeah, that's that's a very good experience for you to make you choose orthopedics. I feel like the people we closely align with ourselves, we honestly like implement their principles onto ourselves, and we're like, okay, this is the group I want to hang out with, or this is the people that I want to help. So that's that's been that's been great. And one thing that um, our listeners are very interested in is obviously med school. So most of our listeners are definitely undergrad and we have a few med school listeners um, that are also interested in just processing the third and fourth years. So basically almost all of uh, med school uh, is our like niche. So um, as someone who has been through that process, I know you said it's a long time ago, but you've been through that process and they, our listeners also want to experience that someday. And you've also worked at multiple university hospitals. So I just want to know, what are some words of advice you'd give to pre-meds? Are there any important principles, ideas, strategies they should stick by? Or um, is there anything else you think might be important for people like that? Well, you know, I think one thing that's a little different now versus when I was doing it is that 
they seem to, in the application process, they seem to put more uh, emphasis on research publications. And so, you know, maybe, I don't know how much of an opportunity undergrad students have at Stony Brook or, or other schools that might be listening to kind of connect with people in the um, medical school if they have one on their university campus, but maybe um, getting involved with some things that way to, you know, if they have some involvement with publications. I mean, I would think that that would be some way of standing out. Other than that, I just think that, you know, getting good grades and just being a decent person will carry the day. I see that's yeah that's honestly pretty simple I mean really it, it's it's a grind more than anything else that's and um, you know you just gotta grind it out I mean I've been doing that you know forever and even in in practice you just kind of get used to working hard and um, it, it's frustrating early on because it's difficult in the sense that you don't really feel like you're acquiring that much in the way of, of skills you're mm -hmm. always kind of jumping through hoops and and, and and just go from one four-year stint to the next. But then at some point in the along the line, you really realize that you are acquiring skills. And so you feel better about that. Um, the other thing for me is that I liked a, a lot of my classmates. And so it was always sort of a good peer group to be mm -hmm. uh, involved with. And so that also was... Um, helpful for me to enjoy the process along the way. And I'm sure even, you know, now the way I talk about it, I'm probably making it sound a lot more enjoyable than it was at the time, because, you know, at the time, I mean, we just studied a lot and, you know, I mean, the truth is, is that if you go, when you go into medicine, you spend a lot of your twenties, all of your twenties, pretty much in school or med school or residency when, Whereas if you look at your friends who aren't in medicine, you know, they're getting on with their lives and doing a lot more fun things uh, during those years. So it's, it's definitely a sacrifice. Um, but again, I think it's one that in the long term, uh, you know, pays off. Yeah. At least for me, it has. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I feel like at every step of life, we have to go through the grind. And uh, it is very important to stress on that. That's for sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, our field is, I mean, if you want to get to the top of any field, I'm sure mm -hmm. that, you know, there's a grind in, in every field. But, you know, in general, I mean, the, the training that goes into being a doctor is certainly a lot longer than most, just about every other profession I could think of. So it's a lot. And the other thing is that it's so much more expensive now, mm -hmm. which I think is a huge factor because, if you don't finish your training until your early thirties and you finish your training and you have substantial debt, um, you know, that has significant implications on how you can sort of proceed in life from then. So I think it's more challenging in that way now than it was back when I went. Absolutely. You know, Dr. Project, like the way you're talking about, you know, developing the skills gradually over time after going through the grind, it really reminds me of, you know, the athlete sort of mentality. And it's funny because just before we got on the record, you were telling me, you know, like I just got out of surgery. It feels like I was in the Super Bowl. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that just like, it's, it's great to see that kind of, you know, enthusiasm, that kind of, you know, passion for what you're doing. 
And I think that's, that's the essential thing that gets you through it, you know, because if you have that, that strong need for improvement, you just end up going through the motions as, as mundane as they may seem, but it's for your end goal. And, and it's like I said, though your life might be imbalanced at one point, at some point, you know, it'll, it'll counterbalance, you know, because once you're putting in all the effort, it, you get to where you want to be. And, it, and well, it the, other, the other thing is with our career, like if you compare our career to say professional athletes, you know, a professional athlete can only do what they're doing from the time that there's say around 20 ish to, you know, maybe kind of early to mid thirties. But the truth is with the average adult living to almost 80 now, you know, to be done with your, the main part of your career at age 35, there's still a lot of time left, you know, whereas for, for physicians, I mean, you could practice, you know, there, there are physicians, there's over a hundred thousand physicians in the United States practicing who are over 70 now, and that number is only going to climb. And, um, you know, one of my goals is to be the oldest operating spine surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, hopefully like you'll, you'll reach that no doubt that you'll be, you'll keep um, doing your surgeries playing like the quarterback in the, in the surgical um, room. But one thing I want to ask is that, you know, it's, it's important for our listeners to realize how fundamental the principles of learning and education are to the science of medicine. And, you know, you're someone that's, that's seen the different changes in medical education. You know, you were saying that um, uh, debt has increased, the focus on research has increased, but in terms of medical school curriculum or the, or the system of, and the different points of entry in medical education, walk us through how it's changed under a broad lens in, in your time as a doctor. You mean in terms of what it's like to be a med student? Well, pretty much just, just everything leading up to being in uh, being a physician or um, in your different training steps. Like what, what have the, the changes been that you've seen? Well, you know, I, I don't know about changes because I'm not that, I'm not that familiar exactly with what's going on now, as opposed to what I did decades before. But, you know, I really think that a lot of the skills that I had in just even in college, just being sitting down and studying and being disciplined and learning. And really those basic skills have carried me through the entirety of the process that I've gone through, whether it be, um, you know, college or med school or residency. I mean, they were all, it's all basically the same, you know, just being able to concentrate and being healthy and, and, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. Really, I can answer that too well in terms of what it's like now versus for other groups. I, I think that it's more or less similar in the sense that it's just, you know, there's a lot to learn and there's not a lot of time to learn it. And so you just got to digest as much of it as you can. I mean, I'm sure that with technology, it's certainly, you know, when I was in med school, we didn't have laptops or anything like that. We didn't do anatomy. I understand that some med students now do anatomy on the computer as opposed to with cadavers, which to me sounds kind of crazy, to be honest with you, because I think you got to really get in there and do it. Um, and um, um, But I'd say, you know, while the technology changes, the still the basic uh, rigor of it and just sticking with it is 
probably not that much different. No, absolutely. You're, you're right. You can definitely see the effect of technology playing on in medical education. I also wanted to ask this is a burning question in my mind. I, I wanted to ask about the new techniques in spine surgery. So, you know, you've, you've been a doctor, you've been a physician surgeon for a very long time. How has new, I guess, like, I don't know, maybe like suture techniques, new. Uh, oh, well, imaging. spine has, yeah. I mean, this has been a great time to be in spine. I mean, from when I, when I finished my fellowship in 1990, you know, there was some, the use of hardware in the spine while it was uh, used for scoliosis surgery, it was by today's standards, very primitive. Mm -hmm. And the amount of um, effort that's gone into um, the collaboration between surgeons and engineers, say with, with uh, implants and spine, not only in spine surgery, but really all of orthopedics, mm -hmm. but in spine in particular, I would I would say probably with confidence that there's not one operation that I do in 2021, which is the way I learned to do it in 1989 and 90. You know the um, the tools we use have gotten so much better. When I was a fellow, we used loops for magnification, which are like mm -hmm. glasses with with telescopes on them that could magnify things two and a half times or three and a half times. You know now we use a microscope regularly where you easily magnify things 10 times we can just see so much more and uh be so much more accurate with your dissection um and then just the uh imaging equipment that we had i mean mri people were starting to use it in the in the 80s but the machines back then compared to what's now again are you know radically different um, and just the techniques of, of fixation. Um, I mean, I remember when I was a uh, fellow or even early in my career in terms of putting screws in this, pet pedicle screws in the spine, we used to just think about doing it in the lumbar spine and nobody would think about putting a pedicle screw say north of T3 or I mean L3 or L2. Mm -hmm. and, and over time, things have changed. And so now we put pedicle screws just about every level up to C7. And then above that, we've got lateral mass screws and just all different kinds of fixation. Um, interestingly, the um, approaches in spine surgery have become a lot more minimally invasive. Surgeries that used to be done through big open incisions are now done through the smaller incisions. Um, they've adapted some of the technology that's used for knee arthroscopy now to do something called spine and endoscopic surgery, where for certain procedures, rather than making an incision, you can make just one or two, eight or 10 millimeter uh, incisions and basically kind of like stick a, um, a, a, a scope down there and not actually looking at the spine, but look, it's projected on a TV screen. Uh -huh. So people in your generation who grew up playing video games, it's sort of tailor-made for you guys. No, absolutely. I was, uh, what's it called? When Wally actually told me about you, you um, he was actually telling me about the less invasive sur surgeries that um, that are coming up and now. And that, that sort of is still surprising to me because whenever I think of surgery, I always think of, you know, cutting open someone. It's like they're their muscles are spread out. You're working like directly on their body. But now it's, it's really crazy how many... In Un, um, less invasive techniques are going into surgery, making 
I guess the surgeries. Yeah, I mean, I mean, even 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 aside from orthopedics, I mean, just even like gallbladder surgery. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, most most med students who trained in my time, they remember that for a gallbladder incision would be like six or eight inches, mm-hmm. and you would you as the med student would be holding on a retractor, pulling the liver out of the yep. way for hours. Yep. And the patient would be in the hospital for you know a day or several days or a week. I mean, whereas now they do them laparoscopically and they're done basically as an outpatient. Yeah, so. absolutely. It's, it's crazy. Uh, my, my dad got his gallbladder removed and he was up and walking in like a couple of hours after. So yeah. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. And, yeah, and, and, and like I say, I mean, if you, if you take, like I've been a spine surgeon between 1990 and 2021, if you take that 30 year segment, mm-hmm. okay, more has happened in spine surgery in those 30 years than, than, 100 or 200 years prior to that so the oh, yeah, pace absolutely. of the pace of technology is has gotten such that things are changing all the time which mm-hmm. is also good in the sense that you know some of the older surgeons i met early in my career they were basically mm-hmm. doing surgeries the same way at the end of their career that they were doing at the beginning of their career mm-hmm. whereas for us because things are changing so much, there's always something new to learn. You know, Mm -hmm. for me, for instance, I've been doing surgery for 30 years and I'm sort of interested now in learning about doing say some of this endoscopic surgery Mm -hmm. is relatively new. And then there's all sorts of new types of use of imaging equipment to actually help you put the hardware in um, again, through more limited incisions and using technology to navigate the placement of fixation um, that allows you to do it through, again, a much more limited approach. Um, and so does, it seems like there's always something, it's not like you, you don't plateau in this field. There's always something uh, new that comes along. And I'm sure it's like that in other fields in medicine too, but it's certainly been the case in spine. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, speaking of, you know, the endoscope so much, Dr. Birchuk, um, I was um, recently, well, a couple of months ago, a couple of a year ago or so ago, I was shadowing in the GI department. And, you know, the things that they can do with the endoscope is just mind boggling that, you know, one second they're taking like a biopsy, the other second they're doing something else. And shortly after that, I, um, I came across you and you told me about um, the phenomenal advancements, you know, in, in spine procedures and scoliosis treatment. Um, the vertebral body tethering, uh, minimally invasive endoscopic procedures, and just the fact that, you know, gone are the days when the only go-to method of treatment was, you know, metal rod placement through very invasive surgery. And, you know, you told, you told me that these advancements that are like, you know, 10, 15 year, years old, but, you know, I was amazed, even though they've been around for so long. And, you know, perhaps this goes to show just how ignorant and lacking exposure undergraduates are. And, since we're that ignorant, since we're that underexposed, you know, I was wondering if you could walk us through how technological advancements are facilitating change in medical procedures, like, you know, the logistics of it all, and maybe even what it looks like in terms of the kind of training that physicians will, rec- will be receiving in the future. Well, I'll tell you, as far as, you know, a lot of these new techniques, I didn't learn during my training. And so you need to figure out a way of learning it on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the ways that 
you can do that is there's certainly courses that you can go to um, where you can, you know, get a pretty good exposure to things. For me, what I found always to be the best way for me to learn new procedures is having um, the opportunity, especially earlier in my career, to go to anatomy labs. You know, again, to make a sports analogy, in the same way that a golfer goes to the driving range to practice his, his stroke, you know, surgeons need to go to anatomy labs to practice different things and kind of experiment. It's sort of like our equivalent of going to your garage and messing around with tools and stuff. You know, for us, I mean, since we're working on, on bodies, to be able to have access to cadavers and having um, the equipment companies available to bring it to you so that you can go and sort of learn it in a comfortable way uh, has been really, you know, key to me. And, and you find that, I mean, in the same way that say, if you learn how to, not every golfer or tennis player has the exact same swing. Everybody has their own little has their own style of doing things. The only, and the only way to really figure out your style is to go and just kind of practice and, and mess around no different than just, you know, shooting baskets or, you know, going to the driving range or whatever you know, just kind of practicing and experimenting on your own. Absolutely. You know, it, it's really amazing how far the science behind the procedures has come. And, you know, though, I think the reason I was so surprised to hear about all these advancements was that, you know, though they've existed and they've existed for many years they're I guess they're not near readily available throughout the world yet. And perhaps discussing if, when, or how these procedures would spread to, you know, third world countries or other countries is a bit beyond the scope of this episode. But, you know, if we're talking about medicine within the United States, you've had your fair, fair share of exposure to, you know, different states, be it Ohio, Alabama, Texas, and New York. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask how your experiences working in different states have compared to one another, not just in the technological standpoint, as, as far as, you know, technological advancements, but also in a broader sense, you know, the lifestyle, the system, the demographic, yeah, well, you know? You know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, a lots of, there are lots of doctors who take a job and stay at that job their entire career. Mm -hmm. Certainly years ago, people would talk about joining a business and being there from cradle to grave. <laughs> um, you know, in my situation, well, first of all, social things have a lot to do with um, where you live, if you want to be near family. And then also the job market has a, uh, a bearing on that in terms of where the jobs are available. You know, for me, I, I wasn't always set on, a, I wasn't committed to being in a specific geography. I, I always wanted to go to where the best opportunity was. And so that uh, took me to different places. When I uh, finished my fellowship, I was looking at uh, university jobs and of the jobs that I um, looking at, I remember it actually came down to either going to New York City or going to San Diego. And so I let my wife decide. So we went to California. <laughs> it was actually a simple decision for her. Um, and so we enjoyed being there. And then my wife's family is from Alabama. And so we went to Alabama after that for 20 years when we had our kids and had the family support there. And um, also at, at these different places, I was exposed to different types of practice. In San Diego, it was more of a, it was a university type environment. Whereas 
in Birmingham, I was in more of a private practice type of setting. And I was in a big orthopedic group for a period of time. And then I was for seven years, I was in a practice with me and a neurosurgeon, uh, which is actually a really valuable part of my uh, practice where you got to interact with someone who did the similar things as me, but came from a little bit different background. And we were able to share our experiences and um, it really was valuable to me. And every place I go, I always like to, to find, out, find out who the most talented person is and try and rub shoulders with them because that's how, that's how you, really, you really learn. Um, and then of course, just always, um, you're never shying away from cases and because your patients really teach you more than anybody just by the experience that you have. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think like viewing, viewing each case as a learning experience and, you know, taking away what you can from that. Absolutely. And, you but, know, and, and, you know, the other thing is, as far as your learning, you know, unfortunately you learn more from your mistakes than you do your, when everything goes perfect. Um, but, you know, if you take your, if when things don't go right, you try and really look at it carefully and figure out, you know, what you did wrong and how you can improve and then that sort of gets you back to looking at journals and doing a little more investigating. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, that's really helpful. One thing that I, that I do on my cases, even now, I call it my post-game show, <laughs> another <laughs> the sports analogy. But when I, you know, so much in, in spine is um, an important part of evaluating the patient is looking at the imaging studies and, and say, if we do a procedure, if I do a surgery where it involves putting implants in, I always like to look at my before and after pictures. And I, and I spend a fair bit of time doing that because that's the way that I can really get feedback on what I'm doing. And, you know, if, if I like it, I say, okay, I'm doing this, I'll keep doing this. Or if I see something that I don't like, it makes me want to, you know, kind of learn about, well, is there a better way of doing this? And so I still like take notes from my patients. Um, and um, one of the things with technology that's made things so much easier now, in the past, say in, in 1990, there was probably just a couple of spine journals that you could look at to, um, to learn more. And they, they were all, of course, by subscription. And so you might, you might subscribe to a couple of them. Now, as I sit in my office, I have a connection to about 25 spine journals from around the world even. That's the other thing that's um, that like, not only do I look at the, the uh, United States spine journals, but the Asian spine journal, the Korean spine journal, the European spine journal, the Indian spine journal, the world spine journal. I mean, there's like good information in all these places. It's sort of like, you know, literally trying to drink out of a fire hydrant sometimes with as much as there is. Right. I truly believe that, you know, all this, um, there's so much knowledge available that, you know, it's, you don't have an excuse to not be able to learn, you know, as students these days. And, and we're hoping that this can also be something like that, you know, where we're bringing your expertise to be available to all the pre-med students or the medical students that want to, um, you know, be orthopedic surgeons maybe someday. But there are a lot of students out there that don't know specifically what specialty they want to go into. So for those that are thinking about orthopedics or considering it, but they're not sure about it, 
what could you tell us about the logistics of the field, you know, your target patient population or the lifestyle one can expect as an orthopedic surgeon? Well, well, first of all, obviously as an undergrad, you don't need to be thinking at all about differentiating yourself that much. I mean, basically at that point, you, all you need to know is that you wanna to go to medical school as opposed to law school or dental school or culinary school, right? And, um, you know, as far as, as far as the things about orthopedics that people like is that the, um, the results of what we do are fairly tangible. You can make, you know, you have somebody who has an arthritic hip say, and you uh, put a, a new joint in and you can dramatically change somebody's life is a little different than some than dealing with some of the more chronic diseases like diabetes and hypertension and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, that's why I like, as far as, you know, within orthopedics itself, there's actually, interestingly, an orthopedic residency is, is now five years and the majority of, of residents do a fellowship after orthopedic residency, which is usually an additional one year. And the number of different fellowships there's a fellowship in trauma. There's a fellowship in, in orthopedic oncology. There's fellowships in hands. There's fellowships in feet. There's fellowships in spine. There's fellowships in total joints. There's fellowships in pediatrics. There's, you know, there's sports medicine fellowships. There's just lots of different ways to go. Um, you know, in general, and again, as far as the type of patient, certainly if you're a sports medicine doc, you tend to see more, a younger population of more athletic people. Whereas in spine, you know, you tend to, because a lot of spinal, at least degenerative diseases happen to older people. So we see more older people. Although again, at a, at a, a setting like Stony Brook, because we're a level one trauma center, we also get people who have spine uh, trauma or we have a cancer center here. So we see patients who have cancer, most often that starts somewhere else and spreads to the spine. And so we see those patients. And then there are other patients who have inf get infections and the bacteria can get into the blood and then seed itself anywhere in the body. And the spine is one of the most common places where infections tend to settle. So, you know, there's, we see a, you know, quite a diversity of patients in spine and even within spine, there's sort of pediatric spine, which is more sort of scoliosis and spinal deformity. Uh, and then there's the adult spine, which is what I do, which is usually ages 18 and above, where you do some deformity, but then you do these other areas like trauma, oncology, degeneration, and infection. Got it. Got it. You know, Dr. Brochek, one thing that I, I feel a lot of students don't have a full picture of is that. You know, if someone were to mention the musculoskeletal system, the first thing that would come to their mind is just orthopedics. And, um, you know, they, uh, they forget that, you know, medicine at the end of the day is like a, a team effort, you know? So, and orthopedics is no exception to that since um, you've mentioned, you know, you had to work with, you know, sports medicine doctors, PMNR, I'm sure neurologists, and even the neurosurgeon that you worked with for a while. And it's, it's interesting to see how all these fields are different and they serve their own niche, but at the end of the day, they all come together for the bigger picture of the patient's health. So, so what's your experience been working with doctors of different specialties like that? Yeah, well, these days what frequently happens is a patient might come in and get admitted to the internal medicine service. 
Okay. And they may, they, you know, because patients are living a lot longer now than they did years ago, patients have a, a much longer list of, of problems. And so, you know, nobody is a master of all trades. And so the internist may admit the patient, but then say if there's a spine infection going on, they, they would consult me. But the same patient who has an infection may also have had cardiac uh, cardiovascular disease and has some stents in mm -hmm. and takes blood thinners because of that. And so if you're thinking about doing a, say, a, a spinal procedure, you need to have the cardiologist involved. And then, you know, maybe they have diabetes on top of that. And if their sugars aren't in good control, then you have an endocrinologist that call, gets called in. Or maybe they have some, some lung problems and a pulmonologist gets, gets called in. And if you want to do some kind of biopsy of some kind, it may be done in radiology where you have an interventional radiologist. And so it's not uncommon. It's actually more the exception that you have a patient for me that is just on my service and has just one doc taking care of them. And that's just at the doctor level, of course, because then there are nurses who are taking care of the patients and there's physical therapists and, um, you know, just lots of people, uh, you know, when you, when you talk to the patients in the hospital, you ask them who they've seen and, you know, they just see so many different people. It's hard for them to keep, keep it straight. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You're right. Um, I work as a patient care tech and um, some of the conversations I do have with the patients, they're basically surrounded by a whirlwind of physicians of white coats, basically coming in and out of the room at 6 a.m. Sometimes at 9 a.m. It's just uh, it's just a whole whirlwind. Um, Dr. Burchuk, I actually wanted to ask you a question about medical education, about ongoing medical education. And whenever anybody thinks about medical educations, your mind automatically goes to the step exams and um, your residency fellowship training, they're all part of your continuing medication. And one of the vast changes that um, I guess have been going on is that um, step one has been pass fail and step two, the CS exam has been discontinued, if anybody didn't know about that. And people tend to throw, throw around all sorts of crazy stories and idea to add to the hype. But why do you think, plain and simple, um, why do you think this change was? Why do you think they made this change? Why did AAMC choose to discontinue step two and make step one pass fail? I have no idea <laughs> is, the, is the short answer. I guess, you know, these days, um, I mean... I don't know if it's politically motivated or, I mean, I mean, the bottom line is, is that when you have a bunch of people applying for a certain number of spots, mm -hmm. I guess there's gotta be some way of differentiating people. Mm -hmm. And I guess having exams is, is one way of doing that. But I guess maybe some people feel like that those exams are, are biased in some ways and some groups have more of an advantage than others. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, but I can tell you that as, as you know, say here with our orthopedic residency, we probably have three or 400 people applying for five spots in our program. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so, the, and so you basically, well, every one of these people has been smart enough that they got accepted to medical school, mm -hmm. right? So, so, so they're already a select group to begin with. So then you take these 500, three, three four, 500 charts and you say, well, how are we supposed to pick five out of this group, 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and other than just randomly picking five charts, like you would a lottery ticket, um, you know, there's gotta be some way, I guess, of, of differentiating people. Like I, I know that when we, when we, um, look at people's applications. I mean, personally, if I see somebody who has just a bunch of passes everywhere, as opposed to say someone whose school has class rank and where a lot of these things, they do have grades. I mean, there's a difference between somebody saying that, well, I was in the 95th percentile versus I passed, mm-hmm. you know, just one. But, but, but that said, you know, the world is going towards the pass fail. So how are you supposed to differentiate you know one person from another i don't know yeah that's that's very true especially there's got to be some there's got to be some metrics that they that people are going to look at no absolutely and uh you've you've mentioned uh 300 400 people applying just for five spots that is that is insane level of competitiveness and obviously orthopedics very competitive but um let's say that there was some med student that's listening to us right now, and they also have a burning passion to go into orthopedics. What is, in your expertise, a way to stand out amongst other medical students in this era of pass-fail education? Well, you know, when people in med, for the ones who are in med school, they do rotations in their third year. And so how they do in their rotations is, is, is one way of differentiating themselves. And then uh, what the COVID uh, pandemic aside, people would do rotation, rotations at other programs that they were interested in to try and get some exposure. Um, and then also the research thing. I mean, I think that when, when, I, when we look at people who are applying to our residency, you see some people who've, who've sp- somehow, in addition to all their work as a med student, they were actually doing research with faculty at, at their school. Um, and so that seems to be a, a big factor too these days. Getting publications, like while you're a med student or even as an undergrad. Absolutely, absolutely. But right. I, I think more than anything else, that if you're just, um, you know, if you're willing to work hard and you generally get good results and you're a decent person, I think that the odds are in your favor. And if you just don't give up, that you're going to wind up where you want to be. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's the most important thing, just persistence. Yep. Grit is one of the key factors to being successful in medicine. That's what I've heard from almost everybody in medicine. Yeah. And, you know, it's a good, it's just for me, medicine is, is the reason why it's a good field for me is that it's just a good overall lifestyle because you know, say like for surgery, you know, you have to be, when you have surgery the next morning, you need to go to bed relatively early. You know, you need to have your energy. So you need to stay in good physical shape. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you can't go out drinking the night before or anything like that. So it's sort of, it imposes certain restrictions on your lifestyle, which are, you know, good for you in, in many ways. Like I say, in terms of sleep, diet, exercise, and that sort of thing. Absolutely. Right. I think all like having a healthy lifestyle is so important to, you know, perfecting your craft. But, you know, I wanted to ask what exactly are the the crafts that, you know, orthopedic surgeons are expected to 
perfect, you know, that um, each surgeons usually have their motor skills that they have to perfect. But I was wondering, med- surgical trainees in orthopedics, what are the what are the skills that they're looking to develop over their years to become full fledged orthopedic surgeons? Well, a lot of it is just exposure to a lot of different cases mm-hmm. and seeing, you know, for a lot, for almost all residents, every field is pretty much new. They haven't had experience in them before. And you just sort of, I, I think that one of the important things along the way is always just listen to your gut. Don't let somebody else talk you into what they think you should be doing, but experience as much as you can and get a sense for what you like and what you feel like you might be good at. And and just sort of, you know, stick with that. Right. Absolutely. So Dr. Burchuk, that being said, I want to give you a huge thanks for coming on to our podcast and talking to us about your journey to medicine. It's been so amazing to see the amount of support we've received from Stony Brook community on this podcast. And, you know, now that we're receiving support from people such as yourself at Stony Brook Medicine, it really means the world to us. Um, I'm sure our listeners will find your advice very helpful, and there's no doubt you've answered some of their questions about orthopedics and medicine as a whole. If there's anything we've missed, though, any question you'd like us to visit, feel free to DM us with feedback. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to hear more, subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcast at Chai with the Pre-Med Guys. See you for the next episode. But until then, stay warm and keep drinking chai. So I just wait. I just wait. So I just wait I know that you can fly But you don't really feel good Hello fellow Chai enthusiast If you're listening to this This episode has now come to an end And your cup of chai is empty as well A little insider knowledge Just for you guys Every step of making this episode Involves a cup of chai Sending emails to our guests take a cup of chai, writing a treatment for an episode, a cup of chai, and especially when we record our episode, we must have a cup of chai. So as you can see, we run through our chai mix, our chai patti, really quick. So if you can help us out by subscribing to us on Apple Podcast and Spotify, and follow us on Instagram under Chai Pies Podcast, we can keep running through our fair share of cup of chais for our episodes. If you DM us that we're the best pre-med podcast in Stony Brook, We'll give you a personalized shout out for making it this far. Thank you for tuning in and thank you to Dre Storm for giving us this amazing outro, which you can hear more from on Spotify under D-R-E-I-S-T-O-R-M. Until then, see you for the next cup of chai. Mm-hmm.